You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Uh, if you'd like to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, not too long ago we looked at what the Apostle Paul tells us is the most important thing that we will ever know. In the start of that chapter, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That, friends, is the gospel in a nutshell. We're all by nature rebels, enemies of God, but Jesus took on himself in his own body the penalty that was due to us for our sin, and that's death. While Christ suffered a punishment, we know that that wasn't the end. He was buried, and on the third day, he was raised back up to life. The proof that the penalty was paid in full and that he had conquered death. Then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at what it means if that isn't true. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, then neither could we hope to be, which would mean we are still in our sins and we have no way of escape. We have no hope for the future. We are hopelessly deluded and pitiful creatures, Paul calls us. But that's not the case. Christ is risen. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's conquered the grave. And so we too can anticipate resurrection one day. So if you'd like to skip down to verse 19, we can thank God for that. For Paul says at the end of that passage, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But we don't have hope for this life only, do we? We have hope beyond death. We have hope for eternity because of Christ's resurrection. Verse 20 goes on to tell us, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verses 19 and 20. Paul tells us if we have hope in Christ only in this life, we are all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul has spent enough time wasting time on objections and arguments about Christ not being raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul tells us. He is certain of it. He would stake his life on it. And in fact, he will stake his life on it in only a few years' time from when he wrote this letter. 
in only a couple of years, years' time, he will face the executioner, beheaded because of his unswerving insistence that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and that Jesus Christ reigns as Lord of all. And that fact of Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of all others. His resurrection is not simply something that happened to Jesus and Jesus alone. Rather, it's an event that set in motion the reversal of the curse that was pronounced back in the Garden of Eden. God is making all things new, as John wrote in Revelation 21.5. Christ is the first fruits of that reversal. First fruits is not a term we use very often nowadays, but it was a well-known and an important term in that ancient and pre predominantly agrarian time. If you're someone who likes to grow your own fruit and veg, you'd know the concept of first fruits, even if you've never actually used the word. No doubt you've said with pride and delight, I picked my first lettuce today. Or I collected my first basket of oranges this morning, so sweet and delicious. That's the first fruits. There's something special about that first orange plucked off the tree. Not necessarily that it's any better or any sweeter than the rest, but it's the reward for long days, weeks, months, years even, of tending carefully to the tree. And so there's a special delight in that first fruit that's picked. But it's more than that. The first orange is the promise of more to come. Whoever heard of an orange tree that only has one orange on it? If you pick one, you get dozens, hundreds, thousands even. There will be plenty more to pick. And not only this, that first orange represents all those oranges to come, not just with this crop this year, but with many crops over many years from the same tree. And to untold thousands of oranges will be picked off that tree over the years, over generations even. And this first one represents all to come in the future. Even more, if the first fruit picked is an orange, so will be the rest of the fruit to follow. None of it will be a lemon, a lettuce, or God forbid, a cucumber. <laughs> So as this first fruit, Jesus Christ, is holy, so will be the fruit to follow. The first fruit is the promise, the pledge of more to come of the same sort. So there's a special delight in this first fruit, not just in the fact that the first fruit is holy and perfect and unspoiled, but in the expectation that God will fulfill his promise that there will be much more of the same kind of fruit to be harvested in the future. As Paul told King Agrippa back in Acts 26, the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul also told the church at Rome in Romans 11, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, the dough being Jesus Christ, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. In Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And in 8.23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's what we have to look forward to because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. That redemption, the purchasing back of our broken and worn out bodies to receive new life, fresh life, eternal life. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than just the promise, the guarantee that we will be resurrected to. For if we were resurrected merely to face judgment, that would be far from good news. That wouldn't be a gospel. But we're resurrected forgiven, justified, and yes, finally sanctified, made holy, not just accounted holy. That is good news. Some people have got hung up on some of the terminology that Paul uses here. When he talks about those who have fallen asleep, he isn't suggesting some sort of unconscious existence after physical death, as if we're somehow alive but in a spiritual coma there is a teaching called soul sleep that's based on that idea and a few similar passages some suggest that when we die our bodies are committed to the ground and our soul or spirit sleeps to await the final day judgment day when we will be awakened to meet our lord face to face but that's not what paul is saying here paul simply uses the term sleep as a substitute for the term death as he made clear back in verse 6 of this chapter, where he said, the resurrected Christ appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. It's terminology that the New Testament uses occasionally to describe physical death. Most notably, it talks about it in that terms in First Thessalonians 4 and 5, if you want to have a look at that sometime later. The New Testament also makes pretty clear that there is consciousness after death, but before the second coming of Christ, before the end. Think of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus, both of whom were conscious and aware of their surroundings after death. Think also of the thief crucified on the cross next to Jesus, who heard the precious words, Today you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, not next year, not 2,000 or 5,000 years into the future. Today, you will be with me in paradise. By using the word sleep, Paul is simply saying that death is not final. Just as sleep is not final. In fact, elsewhere, Paul makes the point <clears throat> that while we're at home in our bodies, we are away from the Lord. And when we die, we are away from our bodies, but at home with him. That's 2 Corinthians 5, if you want to check that out for yourself. So we lay our heads down on our pillows of a night time with every expectation that we'll wake up tomorrow morning. And so with death, at least for those in Christ, we can lay our heads down in death with a confident expectation that we will open our eyes to a new day, a glorious day, a perfect day in the presence of our Saviour. 
what the Bible seems to tell us is that we will open our eyes minus our physical bodies, but still alive and conscious in some sort of spiritual state. Then one day in the future, one day when Jesus comes again, we will receive glorified and glorious bodies. We will never again have to worry about death or old age or sickness or joint pain or exhaustion. Paul will go on to tell us more about that later in this chapter. But for now, death should hold no fear. For his promises and his presence we have to look forward to. But death is inevitable, at least until Jesus returns. Death is inevitable. While we still live in these mortal bodies, we will one day face death. Still, we need not fear it. The raising of Jesus Christ as first fruits assures us of the resurrection of believers as the fruit to follow. And Paul tells us why it's guaranteed in verses 21 and 22. He says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the pattern is this. Death came through a man, Adam. So all who are in Adam die. That is every person that's ever lived on the face of this earth, except for one. Resurrection from the dead comes through a man, Jesus Christ. So all who are in Christ will rise. It's a simple equation. To be in, to be in Adam equals death. To be in Christ equals life, resurrection. But understanding this equation is dependent on understanding something about our existence that many people don't feel comfortable about. It's what theologians call federal headship, federal headship. Federal headship is the idea that one person represents all the others. A modern example of that can be found in democratic governments where one person is elected to represent all his constituents at the highest level. His or her decisions impact all of those in his electorate and potentially everyone in the nation. None of the citizens are excluded from the effects of the decisions made by their leaders. Even if they go to live overseas, while they maintain their citizenship, they're affected by local government legislation. That's a pretty simple example of federal headship. And we don't give it a moment's thought in our daily lives. And so it is with both Adam and Christ. But the impact of their federal headship on us is much more significant than the impact of our elected representatives. Adam is our first representative, our federal head, the head of the human race. He represented all of humankind in the covenant covenant God made with him and with his descendants. Had Adam obeyed and remained faithful to God, all of his descendants would have received the promised blessings. And none of us would have wanted to argue the point about his federal headship then. (laughs) But Adam's fateful decision to disobey God back in the Garden of Eden brought calamity, brought death, not just on himself, 
but on all his descendants. As by a man came death, as in Adam all die. None of us escape. And it's not just a finite life and certain death that we've inherited from Adam. We've also inherited the sin nature from him and the consequent rebellion, spiritual death and separation from God that goes with that. That's why even a one-year-old infant raised in the most loving home will show signs of rebellion and defiance. It's programmed into us. It's in our genes, our spiritual genes, so to speak. So the sin of Adam, that original sin, is legally, in a court of law, our sin, because Adam represented us. Adam's sin and his guilt is imputed, is the Bible term, credited to our account. Hence, the penalty that Adam owed is also the penalty that we owe. But it's also the penalty that we're incapable of paying. You can protest all you like about whether or not it's fair. Whether you like it or not, it's still true. But it's bad news for all of us. Adam was our federal head, our representative. Whatever is true of him, disobedient, rebellious, self-willed, self-indulgent, doubting, you name it, whatever is true of Adam is true of us according to our human nature. Conversely, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So also all in Christ will be made alive. This is the good news. Just as we are in Adam in our natural state, So when we put our trust in Christ, we are now in Christ. That means that we have another representative before God, a different representative, another federal head. Only this one did obey God, and he obeyed God perfectly. He obeyed him in everything he did, and he obeyed him in everything he avoided doing. It's what's sometimes called the active and passive obedience of Christ. He always did right. That's the active obedience. And he never did wrong. That's the passive obedience. And so he did what Adam and the rest of us were unable to do. He obeyed perfectly. Therefore, Jesus was not subject to the punishment the rest of us were due. None of us could ever make that claim to perfect obedience, no matter how hard we try. Even if we could get through a day without committing a fresh sin, what can we do about all the sins that we committed yesterday, last week, from the time of our birth? There's no escape from the punishment that's due to us. Paul wrote the plaintive cry in Romans 7, I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer? You know the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For whom is there no condemnation? For those who are in Christ Jesus. That's federal headship at its best. That's good news. That tells us that all who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, all those who are in Christ, receive the benefits of his perfect life and his sinless death. Just as Adam's sin and guilt was credited to us when we were in Adam, so Christ's righteousness is now credited to us when we believe in him. That's something we could never achieve if left to our own devices, never in a million lifetimes. Those who reject the idea of Adam as their representative need to keep this in mind. No Adam, no Christ. The pattern is set in scripture by God himself. You can't have it both ways. If you don't want to accept Adam's federal headship over you in regards to your sin, then you have no claim on Christ's federal headship either, which leaves you with only one alternative if you'd be rescued from this body of death. Perfect obedience from the moment of your birth, from the moment of your conception, if you read David's son, to the time of your death, perfect obedience. If you think that's too hard to do, then you better throw yourself on his mercy and welcome his headship over you. The moment you do that, you'll be able to proclaim with Paul that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to say in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When the end will come is anyone's guess. Plenty have tried to predict the second coming of Christ over the centuries, and so far, all of them have failed. In fact, some of the Christian denominations and some of the pseudo-Christian cults that exist today have sprung out of a period of intense speculation about the return of Christ in the early 19th, early to mid-19th century. It's a period that was dubbed the Second Great Awakening in America, although sadly it seems to have been mostly an awakening to error and heresy. But confident predictions of the end have failed that the, when the end has failed to come to pass hasn't stopped any of them, it seems. They either recalculate and try again or they ignore what they said and go on. Never put to stop when it comes to religion. People have too much, too much interest vested in their their proclamations it seems you can explain your error away well enough that there'll be always be some who will continue to believe and to follow when jesus does finally come back there won't be any need for more excuses to explain why you got it wrong yet again it'll be obvious for all to see when he comes back we do not want you to be uninformed paul writes in first thessalonians 4 
about those who are asleep, there he uses that term again, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God. It won't be a quiet, secret, hidden event when Jesus comes back. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. All those who belong to Christ will be resurrected to meet him and receive their glorified bodies, bodies that will never again wear out and break down. Then comes the end, the end of history, the end of any opportunity to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Then comes what believers have been looking for since the dawn of time, since Adam and Eve. Then will Jesus Christ destroy every rule and every authority and every power and put all his enemies under his feet. Then God will fulfill the promise he made to the devil back in the garden when he told him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That time is not yet. The fact that we're sitting here this morning says that Jesus hasn't come back yet. But it's coming as surely as the sun rises in the morning. And as surely as the stars shine at night, nothing will stop it and nothing will delay it. God has mapped out the course of history. He has mapped out the end of days. Nothing can interfere with his plan. Everything works to fulfill his plan. You can bet your life on it. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, Rest assured that that day is coming when you'll have to give an account for every word spoken, for every deed done, for every good thing you've neglected to do. Unless your record is absolute perfection, you're in trouble. Your life will be weighed on the scales and it will only take one lie, one bad word, one angry response one neglect to do the right thing to tip the scales against you forever. And you'll be required to pay the penalty, death, eternal death, eternal punishment. There will be no prospect of release, no prospect even of momentary relief. Your only hope is to throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ.
to turn to him as your representative before God. Your only hope is to appoint him as your advocate, your legal counsel in the courts of heaven. If you'll do that, you will hear your advocate, Jesus Christ, declare on that final day that the penalty is paid in full. Remember what he said on the cross? It is finished. There's no more required for you to pay when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your federal head, as your advocate. The full penalty was paid by him. And it's offered to you free of charge if you'll only put your trust in him. For those of you who have already put your trust in Christ, you can look forward to that time with optimism, with excitement, with enthusiasm. You can pray for that day to come when you die. For then you will be clothed with your new body. No longer will you bear the image of the man of dust, Adam, along with all the pain and the suffering that goes with that body. In that day, you'll bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. I'll talk more about that new body in a future message. But for now, we should give thanks to God for the amazing work he has done in the most unlikely way. A brutal cross, a symbol of rejection, a symbol of curse that has guaranteed the forgiveness of sin for all who would put their trust in the one who hung on that cross and rose again. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.